the 1970s, there was a famous book that was written. It's actually kind of a sci-fi book. It was written as a social commentary. It was called The Stepford Wives. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen the movie. The Stepford Wives had had an interesting plot. You're probably familiar with the plot, that the men of Stepford, Connecticut had figured out a way to brainwash their wives to make them completely submissive, to make them totally compliant. That the wives of Stepford, they cooked and they cleaned, they always kept up perfect appearances. They never complained, they never argued. Basically, they only existed to serve their husbands to do what they were told and always to do it with a smile. Now, from the husband's perspective, see, this was how they thought they were going to have the perfect wife and the perfect marriage. She exists to serve me, to please me, to support me, to never cross me, never contradict me. And therefore, marriage life will be perfect. Now, the, the, the premise of that story is, of course, immoral and terrible, but it's also self-defeating. Whatever the husbands thought they would, they would experience, hoped they would find in the process, they didn't actually receive. Because the truth is that to have a relationship with another person requires that that person contradicts us. If, if the husband's thought, if my wife just serves me, then that would make life perfect. But see, then the husband never learns to serve, and therefore he never learns how to love her. If she just exists to, uh, to, to bless me and never cross me, never contradict me, well then, in the husband's case, he can never actually see his own faults, see his own sins, and change. Therefore, he doesn't know what it is to love her and change for her. Now, of course, from the wives' perspective, they weren't loving their husbands in any kind of way because they were just operating according to a program. They were just like robots. There was not any love and real relationship there to speak of. Okay, Kyle, where are you going with this? Um, It's possible, y'all, that we can approach our relationship to God just like that. Y'all, there are a lot of people, a lot of people, who want a God who serves them, loves them, blesses them, agrees with them, and then just gets out of their way. And I'd be, I'd be lying if I said I was never guilty of that temptation and that desire. A Stepford God, a God of my own making, that there's, there's probably part of your heart and part of mine that I want a God who makes me happy and who makes me comfortable and never crosses me contradicts me, challenges me, disciplines me. That's the kind of God I want. Sounds, sounds kind of nice, doesn't it? Well, y'all, first of all, of course, no such God exists. But then secondly, we, we, it's self-defeating to think of God that way. It's not just sinful, but it's self-defeating. Because only if God is able to cross you can you really know what it is to know him and live for him and love him. Only if God can contradict you, call you a sinner, challenge you, discipline you, only then can you know what it is to have relationship with him, because that's how relationship is meant to work. We cannot shape God into our own image. No, God created us in his image. And so when God crosses us, when God contradicts us, and he does, we don't get to bend him back into the way we wish he was. We have to change. I have to bend, right? And only when we experience that, only when we experience God like that, can we really know how much he loves us. Only if God can cross you and contradict you are you going to know how much he loves you. I think Jonah chapter 4 tells us that as we look at the story. Jonah 4, y'all, is an amazing picture of what we're talking about. And it's really, to me, it's one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible. It is such a visceral 
very real, not a very Sunday school kind of chapter. In fact, most of the time when people talk about the book of Jonah, they don't talk about chapter 4 at all. Most of us, when we talk about Jonah, the book ends with him being spit out of the whale's mouth and into and onto dry land. Or maybe it ends in chapter 3 with the repentance of the Ninevites, but a lot of times we don't ever talk about chapter 4 because chapter 4, frankly, is unsettling. And it's strange that chapter 4 is the way it is because it comes on the heels of chapter 3. We looked at this last week, a wonderful, triumphant chapter in the Bible that God finally gets Jonah into Nineveh, that the, the message of judgment and justice has been brought to the people of Nineveh, and they repent. They turn from their sin. They pray to God. They leave their wicked deeds behind, and God shows mercy to them. It's an amazing story, but Jonah doesn't end there. Because, see, for Jonah, what happens at the end of chapter 3 is not a triumph at all. It's not wonderful. In fact, what Jonah witnesses sickens him so badly that he wishes himself dead. Why was Jonah so far away from the heart of God at the end of the book? Don't you think he'd be closer, not further away? Why was Jonah the way he was? Well, let's read it again and find out. What Paul just read for us, let's walk back through the story. God has just forgiven the Ninevites, the end of chapter 3. But we see it in verse 1 of 4. It says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. In the Hebrew in which this was first written, Jonah sees this as evil. He's not just mad. He thinks this is evil, what God's done. In verse 2, he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Y'all, you know, it's interesting. We get an insight right here into an argument Jonah has been having with God since the beginning of the story. From back in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we never see it until now, but Jonah has said something, argued back to God something, as to what prompted him to run the other direction in the first place. He says, I knew you were going to do this. From the moment, God, you first told me to go to Nineveh, I knew what you were intending to do. I knew that you were going to show them mercy, so I tried everything in my power to stop that from happening. What was it that Jonah knew about God that compelled him to act the way he did? Well, he quotes, he actually quotes God's own words back to him. Something God said to Moses back in Exodus 34 about himself. This is God's self-description, and we see it in, uh, in verse 2. That God is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah knows that. He's always known that from the time he was a boy. So when God shows mercy to the Ninevites, it doesn't come as a surprise to Jonah. That's not his problem, that it shocks him. Jonah's problem is he thinks he knows better than God. Jonah's got a higher standard of righteousness than God has. That's Jonah's problem. That's what he sees. That these wicked people don't deserve mercy, and God, you are wrong to give it to them. That's why he's mad. Y'all, there are, there are probably many sins in Jonah's heart right, right now at this point of the story. Two that jump off the page to me. Two sins that were dominant, that, that in a sense brought about this tantrum that we could also maybe be guilty of. The first thing Jonah's guilty of right here is simple self-righteousness. He's self-righteous. 
Jonah, listen, Jonah knows that God is merciful. He's just told us. Jonah likes that God is merciful, just so long as God is merciful to the right kind of people. Do you think Jonah was upset when God showed him mercy in the belly of the fish? No. Jonah was quite pleased to receive mercy for himself. But see, when, when God shows the people of Nineveh a similar mercy, a saving mercy, a rescuing mercy, Jonah flips his lid. He can't handle it because he's self-righteous. Y'all, if we celebrate God's mercy given to us, and yet we find ourselves resenting when God gives mercy to somebody else, that shows that the grace of God has not really gotten down deeply into our hearts. It's a shallow kind of relationship. I like what God does for me, but other people don't deserve it. See, that's what Jonah's problem is, self-righteousness. That can be a problem for us too. Second thing we see in Jonah, a sin. Jonah is a nationalist, which means he cares more about the well-being of his own country, his own people, than he cares about the good of others, of other nations and other people groups. Um, part of why Jonah is angry is that the Ninevites are wicked and he doesn't want wicked people to be forgiven. That's part of it. But another part of it, a big part of it is, the Ninevites are the enemies of Israel. These, are the in- these aren't just some random people group out yonder. These are the enemies of Israel. And Jonah is thinking... If God spares them, if God shows mercy to them rather than judgment, it's only a matter of time before they regroup and come after us again. It's only a matter of time before they they mount another military campaign against my people, God's people, the people of Israel. Y'all, that's a valid concern. We couldn't blame Jonah for feeling that way. There's nothing wrong with Jonah loving his country and wanting Israel to live in safety and prosperity, but... For him to root for and wish for and desire the absolute destruction of another people group, of a whole city, when God has already expressed a desire to show them mercy, see, that shows that Jonah's priorities are out of order. That shows that Jonah has a love for Israel, which is a potentially a good thing, but he has he has put it out of order that he loves his country and the future of Israel. He loves that more than he loves the heart of God and what God desires to do elsewhere, more than he loves those around them. Jonah's nationalism is at odds with God's mercy for the nations. Now, y'all, most of us, I'm sure, are proud Americans. I'm a proud American. I really am. But there is a difference between a healthy love for your country and a nationalistic pride that invariably when we have a nationalistic pride we see ourselves as fundamentally better than other people we're better we're right they're wrong and what we end up doing is we end up looking down on disdaining other people groups people who are different than us and they don't have to just be other nations necessarily but just people who are different color different socioeconomic position than we are whatever it is we can potentially look down on people who are different than us because we have gotten our priorities out of order we lose compassion toward people and that might that might feel right politically but it's at odds with the heart of god God declares a love for all people and he treats all people equally as created in his image. Every single person, every single nation that is true of them in the same way that it's true of us. So the bottom line, listen, for Jonah, the bottom line is he is committed to certain ideas that when God crosses him on those things, he explodes. He is so firmly committed to certain priorities that when God contradicts him, Jonah can't handle it. 
And y'all, the same thing can happen to us. If I, in my heart, if I'm self-righteous, if I view myself or my class or my country as fundamentally better than other people, then God's going to cross me on that, and it's going to be a, a difficult discussion. Because God's going to challenge me concerning his mercy where it's absent in my own heart. That's what's happening to Jonah. And it gets so bad for Jonah that he, well, just look at what happens in verse 3. Therefore now, this is him praying, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Jonah says, I don't want to live in a world like this, where the wicked pagan enemies of Israel get mercy instead of judgment. God, if this is how you're going to run the world, then I don't want to be a part of it. I'd rather die. This is an unsettling verse. I mean, at least Jonah's being honest, right? He he no longer sees any reason to live. This is a really big point, but it's a short one. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's, it's significant. I've preached on this before and certainly will again. Listen, if you and I, right where we sit, if you and I, if we give priority to anything other than God, if we give ultimate priority in our lives to something else other than God, then what we're declaring is that that thing is my meaning for life. That thing is what gives me my sense of self and significance. This is what gets me out of bed in the morning. This is my priority, right? And even if that's a seemingly a good thing, if it's, if it's got priority over God, then it's out of order. So you, it could be for us our family, which is a good thing. Your marriage, your kids, we devote our lives to those things. It may be country or politics. It may be career or wealth or some other form of ambition, good grades, friendships, achievement, popularity, approval, anything. Listen, if you put anything as your main source of existence, of significance, of meaning, if it's not God, then not only are you sinning, but it's also, like we talked about earlier, it's self-defeating. Because that thing, whatever it is, no matter how good it may seem, that thing is itself a temporary and fleeting thing. It's not an eternal thing. And therefore, we become very fragile people when those things, whatever they are, when those things are threatened, when those things are taken away, when we fail, or when those things fail us, we lose our meaning for life. Our whole world crumbles and we explode. We do like Jonah does. Jonah has lost his meaning for life. And in the end, when God does his will and crosses Jonah's will, Jonah says, I'd rather die than live to see this happen. The thing that has given him his sense of self and significance has been taken away from him, and he can't handle it. Y'all, if you put anything in that place other than God, that will happen to you too. Life will fall apart because life cannot be built and rooted on temporary things. It's meant to be rooted in the person of God who does not change and who always keeps his promises. Jonah failed that test right here, but we do too. And we need to be aware of it when it happens. God is giving Jonah... A, a sense of the crushing pain of having his idols crushed and taken away. Jonah is experiencing his top priorities in life taken from him, right? And God's doing that on purpose. God, what God does for Jonah, he graciously does for all of us. And I say it's gracious, listen, because we see what God does in this story. This is, this is not God trying to uh, bring Jonah to, into destruction, This is God trying to save Jonah. All right, look at verse 5. Jonah went out from the city and set east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. You know what he's doing right here? 
He gets out of the city, but he takes a seat and he watches because he's hopeful that God will change his mind and destroy Nineveh. And if that happens, Jonah wants to have a front row seat. He's still hopeful that they'll be destroyed. Verse 6, so the Lord appointed a, a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Is God just playing games with Jonah right here? What's going on? Y'all, God is, is patiently but forcefully trying to open up Jonah's eyes here, trying to open his eyes to reality and open his eyes to the heart of God. And God uses, of all things, he uses a plant. If you've been with us walking through Jonah, God has used nature in profound ways all throughout this book. He sends a storm in chapter 1. He sends a fish in chapter 2. Right here, he uses a plant and then a worm and the wind and the sun. God is using nature to try to get a message across to this prophet. But what God does, he makes a shade plant to grow up quickly over Jonah and give him comfort. And verse 6 tells us that Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. Now, again, as it's written in the Hebrew, this is very forceful language. He wasn't just mildly pleased and satisfied. He was like a kid on Christmas morning. He was abundantly overjoyed when this plant grew up over his head. If Jonah lived in modern times, he would have taken a selfie with the plant. Hashtag blessed. He would want everybody to know about the plant. This is how happy he was about the plant. But then, almost as soon as it sprouted up, God sent a worm to eat the plant. And the very next morning, the plant was withered and useless. And God cranks up the wind and the sunshine and the heat to the point that Jonah begs with all his soul. He begs to die, saying, death is better to me than life. Now, y'all, this is a strange scenario. I remember multiple, multiple times reading through Jonah 4, thinking, what on earth is God doing right here? God is trying to show Jonah his own heart. He's using maybe for us some strange methods, but he's trying to show Jonah a picture of his own heart. Y'all, when the plant sprung up, Jonah was exceedingly happy. It's like all of his anger from earlier in the chapter was gone because of the plant. But then when the plant was gone, the very next day when it withered and died, Jonah was wishing for death. How do you explain such a massive swing in emotions right here? Y'all, Jonah was so fixated on himself that he lost all perspective that the plant made him happy. When the plant was gone, he wanted to die. He was so self-focused, inward-focused, that he lost all perspective in the story. He certainly can't see things from the perspective of God. And that's why God is, is pushing and pushing and pushing, and finally God just comes in at the end and declares it plainly. Look at verse uh, 9. So God said to Jonah, Do you have reason? Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Isn't this an interesting conversation? Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Third time in this chapter, Jonah has wished to die. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. God is saying to Jonah, you had nothing to do with this plant. You had absolutely, you didn't, you didn't plant the seed, you didn't water it, you didn't cause it to grow. I did that. But because the plant brought you comfort, you turned it into an idol. 
You turned it into something that it wasn't meant to be. It's not, it wasn't just shade for you. It became your reason for living so that when it was gone, you wanted to die all over again. And even though it was just a plant, Jonah, you had compassion on that plant. And when it died, you grieved it. You had compassion on the plant. Now, verse 11. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. God is saying some really important things to Jonah right there, right there in that last verse. First, God is saying that he has compassion on people. You say, well, duh. We all know that to be true. But listen, the, the, the thing, Jonah's not upset that God has compassion generally. That doesn't bother Jonah. It's the fact that God has compassion on wicked people. That's what Jonah can't handle. On violent people. These were the people of Nineveh. They were outsiders. They were non-Israelites. These were people living in darkness spiritually about as far away from God as they possibly could be. And God is saying, I feel compassion for them. They're not far from my heart. And God is saying also, he doesn't have just compassion on a select few of the people of Nineveh. Not just John and Mark and Patty and Judy and, you know, a couple of people there. No, no. God says, on the entire city, all 120,000 people, I care about the whole place, the whole people group. Even the animals, God says, I care about. And he says, I have compassion on their spiritual blindness. They are wicked, yes. They are living apart from me, yes. But God says they are spiritually blind. They don't know the difference between their right and left hand, meaning they are ignorant of true righteousness. And God says, I'm not indifferent to that. I'm not indifferent to their lostness. I created them in my image, and I care about them. Jonah, if you cared so much about the temporary plant, how much should I care about the eternal souls of an entire city of people? Then the story's over. The story's over. There is absolutely no response from Jonah. There's, the loose ends don't get tied up. God speaks and it's over. Y'all, like about a month ago, if you were here, we walked through the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. Very striking similarities between that story and this one in that they both really have no ending. They end very anticlimactically. Right here in Jonah 4, we have God pleading with the self-righteous prophet to open up his eyes to grace. Well, in Luke 15, the story Jesus told, we have a loving father, God, pleading to his self-righteous son that he might open up his eyes and his heart to grace. And in both stories, we don't know how the son, how Jonah responds. We might like to think and hope that they responded positively, but we don't know. The stories are left open-ended, and that's absolutely intentional. Because the story, listen, ultimately the story is not really about Jonah Jonah's important, but the focal point, the point of the story is God, is God, is the nature and character of God. God makes his point. He makes it loud and clear. God gets the last word, and then the story's over. It's open-ended, and I think at least part of the intention, as it was written these almost 3,000 years ago, is that it's open-ended not just for Jonah's sake, but for ours too. That when the people of God read the book of Jonah, it's meant to pierce our hearts and ask of us the very same questions that God asked of Jonah in that day. How will, when God shows grace, when God reveals the true nature of his own heart and character, 
How will God's people respond? Will we respond self-righteously like Jonah did, or will we jump on God's bandwagon and become like him? That's the question. Hopefully Jonah did. I, you know, I tend to think he did. I tend to think that Jonah wrote Jonah after the fact, and that that would be an indication that, that his heart turned. We don't know, though. It's maybe wishful thinking on my part. But ultimately, we have to, to wrestle with the question of, okay, do I reflect the heart of God as he expresses it at the end of Jonah 4? That's the question. And so here, as we close here, I want to give us two takeaways. Some of these are, are general enough to cover the whole book that we've been going through these last four weeks. But really, just, just from chapter 4, as we've seen it today, two takeaways that we, I feel like we've got to incorporate and let these things settle deep down into our hearts if we're going to change. One is more inward. The other is more outward. Okay? And so the first one, inward, more personal. When God contradicted Jonah's priorities, Jonah's idolatries, Jonah exploded, right? He exploded. How did God respond to that? How did God respond to Jonah's disrespect, his explosive anger? God could have simply said, listen, I'm God and you're not. Get in line and deal with it. This is the way it is. God could have said that. He would have been within his rights to say that. But God actually has a conversation with Jonah. He's very gracious. He's incredibly gracious. And he, he almost, he, he's asking counselor type questions. Do you have a good reason to be angry about this? Right? God is very patient. He's very gracious with Jonah. See, God is not just showing grace to the Ninevites in this story. He's also showing grace to Jonah. He has grace for Jonah. He wants Jonah in his heart to change. And I said this earlier. Unless we allow God, unless God is able to contradict us the way we see it in this chapter, unless God is able to contradict us in our sin, in our wrong thinking, in our waywardness, we're never really going to know him. We're never really going to understand his heart, and we're never really going to know how much he loves us and how much he loves people. That may seem backward, because it may be our nature to think, no, well, God is supposed to coddle me. God is supposed to just love me and serve me and be nice to me all the time and not cross me, and therefore he would love me. But unless God can cross you, you'll never know how much he loves you. How do I know that's true? Because that's what the gospel tells us. The gospel means good news. The good news of Jesus Christ begins with horrible news. We are told in no uncertain terms in the scripture that you and I, we are so absolutely sinful and lost and there's nothing we can do about it. The only thing that we can do in ourselves, given left to ourselves, we can sin and therefore earn God's judgment and we have absolutely no hope in ourselves. We can't unsin and save ourselves. That's the bad news. That's the contradictory thing. Something I don't like to think about myself, and yet the scripture declares it true. But the good news, the gospel says that at the very same time that I'm lost in my sin, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. That God has loved you so much beyond your imagination, so much beyond what you deserve, that he would send his own son into the world to bear your judgment for you. That you in its place might receive life and forgiveness and grace forever. Right? See, only if the gospel crosses you in your sin can it then heal you. Can it then save you. Y'all, I'm telling you right now, it may be tempting to think of God as a Stepford God 
The kind of God who just lives for me, exists for me, loves me, serves me, and it's all good. He just wants to love me like a grandfather would love a grandchild, right? That's the kind of God I want. But y'all, I want to tell you the truth. A Stepford God might be nice to you, but he would not die for you. That kind of God would serve you, but he could never save you. Only if he crosses you in your sin can he forgive you of that sin through his son Jesus. And for some of us today, this this inward application today is this, that you and I, if, if we have in our hearts this Stepford God mentality, this God with very soft edges, then we need to let that go in favor of the God of the Bible, the God of the Bible who has sharp edges, who brings us at times pain, who disciplines us, but he disciplines us for our good. Y'all, when you go into the doctor for surgery, a surgeon, he's going to use very sharp instruments, very painful things, but it's for the purpose of healing you, right? God's got a sharp edge on him for our good, and we need to embrace the God who crosses us, because only, we, only then can we know the God who loves us enough to save us from our sin. Second takeaway, the last thing is, is more outward, okay? We looked at personal, but now let's think more broadly. Y'all, the, the book of Jonah, all throughout, all four chapters, it's such a crystal clear picture of God's love for the nations, of God's love for all people. Um, Jesus said it very famously in, in uh, I just quoted it from John 3, God so loved the world, right, that he sent his son. He also said it in Matthew 28 when he commissioned his disciples at the end of his ministry on earth before he ascended into heaven. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them and teach them to observe what I've commanded you. All the nations are in view in the mind and the heart of God, all of them. Now, I, I'm, y'all, I know this is going to sound bad, but I'm just going to say it. I sometimes may fall into the trap of thinking that God has a special and unique love for white middle-class Southern people, because that's what I am. And there are times, y'all, more often than I care to admit, there are times where I can't see beyond my own nose. I can't see beyond my own boundaries. And I start to think of myself and people who are like me, that we're just, we live in some sort of special blessing that maybe others don't get to experience. And y'all, that is so far from the truth of the scripture and from the heart of God. That if I fail to see the world outside of me, then I'm failing to see through the eyes and the heart of God. God's compassion, we see it in Jonah 4, God's compassion went far beyond Jonah's boundaries. And for Jonah, that posed a big problem. Well, guess what? God's compassion goes far beyond my boundaries too, and yours too. That none of us in this room are, are as absolutely loving and compassionate as God is. And so God, we, whatever, whatever it is, the little bubble that we perhaps create for ourselves and we box God in, we need to be broken out continually to see that God has a heart for people who are different than us. That includes people in our own neighborhoods, not just people across the world. That God loves both, both nice people and nasty people. That God loves those of us who are free and those of us who are in prison. That God loves all people. And that Jesus came for the world. And so the question is, as we look at the compassion of God, as he displays it to Jonah through the forgiveness of the Ninevites, if God is that compassionate, the question is, is Jonah that compassionate? We hope he got there. But at this point, the answer is no. Well, what if I look in the mirror and ask myself the same question? Am I that compassionate? Do I see the world the way God sees the world? 
That's a difficult question for me. It's difficult because I know the answer a lot of the time. We are meant, Christians, we are meant to pray for and hope for the salvation of people who do not know God. We should be committed to being the most merciful and compassionate people in the world. That is true in terms of mercy and justice ministries, feeding the poor, clothing the naked, fighting for the rights of the unborn, things like that. Absolutely it is. But it's also got to be a burning heart to share the hope of our faith with people who do not know him, that they might come to the same grace that we've experienced. Now, I don't, I, I'm guessing in this room, none of us are against that. But the harder question is, am I for that? Do I just want God to generically bless the world, save the world? Yes. But is my life reflective of that kind of heart, that I'm in the game? That's the harder question for me. Now, if you're a person like me, this is hard. The thought of sharing your faith, the thought of living on mission for God, oh my goodness. It's scary, it's difficult, I don't know where to start. Y'all, that's, I struggle with this. Maybe you do too. Can we start with prayer? And, and I, I don't want to say that in a passive way that we excuse ourselves from doing anything, no. But listen, if we're going to have a compassionate heart that produces compassionate words and actions then that's got to start with God bringing transformation. That's got to start with God contradicting me as I stand here. That where I lack compassion, where I see things as, 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 as life being revolving around me, as God existing to serve and love me, where any of that is present in my heart, I need God to cross me on that, to bring the sharp edge, to change me through Jesus Christ that I might become more like him. And I suspect that all of us need that to some degree. And if we're going to have it, we've got to pray for it. We've got to want it. When Jonah prayed in chapter 4, he prayed to die so that he could exit the world and no longer live in a world where God treated people like this. Right? That's how far away he was. I don't know that any of us are quite that far from God at the moment. I hope not. But even if you are, look at, listen, if God crosses us, we trust from the Scripture and we trust, I hope, from our experience that he does it out of love. That God wanted to reach Nineveh, yes, but he also wanted to reach Jonah. And the last word of Jonah is directly to him and directly to us ultimately. This is the heart of God. Should I not have compassion on these people? This is who I am. And Jonah had to deal ultimately with that. Am I going to, as God crosses my will, am I going to change? Or am I going to harden myself against God and demand that he change? Well, y'all, he ain't changing. Right? And we should be glad for that. Because his, his essential character in nature is compassion. You and I are sitting in this room because God has not changed his mind about us. Praise God. That's the only reason we're even here right now, is that he was gracious to us. God, make my heart like yours. Reach the world. Yes, God, please reach the world, but use me to do it. I want to be in the game. And I, I, for us, we've got to pray, and I hope we'll pray every single day for a heart like this. God, would you produce a compassion like yours? that moves me to action. I need this as much as anybody in the room. I've got to pray this. The God who reached Nineveh also reached Jonah. The God who desires to reach the world wants to do it through us. He doesn't have a plan B. He's going to use us, and therefore he's got to change us. Let's pray that he would. Father God, we ask this morning uh, that you would cement deeply into our hearts this compassion, that this is your nature, this is who you are. 
that, Lord, what we, what we talked about last week is still true. You don't have your finger on the button somewhere waiting for us to mess up so that you can get rid of us. No, but when you look upon us, Father, you look upon us through the lens of the grace of Jesus Christ who shed his blood that we might be granted forgiveness and mercy and grace and life that you might call us your beloved children. And we receive that as a gift of faith. And so, Father, if that's true of us this morning, if we look to you in faith and say, God, we, we know this is who you are, a loving and gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting concerning calamity, this is who you are, that we would not try to make you into something else, but that we would accept that grace for ourselves and pray, Lord, that you would make that grace operational in our lives. Lord, let your compassion become our compassion. Let your way of, of seeing the world become our way too so that we might see beyond our own noses, that we might um, recognize lostness and darkness in the world and be as broken over it as you are. Father, if we, if we think about Nineveh in, in today's own terms and, and just translate it for ourselves, Lord, could we imagine you saying, should I not have compassion on Jackson, Mississippi? and Ridgeland and Madison and Flowood and Brandon? Should I not have compassion on Birmingham, Alabama and on Izmir, Turkey and Nairobi, Kenya? Father, your compassion does not run out. And so we, we pray that you would fill us with hearts that when you cross us on this, that we would come to see just how much you love us and how much you desire to use us for your glory in this world. We need you um, to dismantle the priorities that get in the way. And Lord, show us that you have grace abundant to do it. Um, we love you, Father. And where this hurts us, I pray, Lord, that we give you thanks and praise, knowing that you only hurt to heal, that you bring this pain, Lord, to show us your heart, that we might walk more in step with your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen.